morning. My name is Daniel Schreiner. I am married to Ashley. We have three children, Samuel, Iris, and Willa, ages six, four, and almost two. Uh, we moved to Oregon five years ago from Kentucky. And if you want to know more about me, if you're curious, maybe consult Google or Facebook. Um, <laughs> Thank you for having me come preach here at Harvest uh, this morning. You did have Matt invited me. I'm not just some random guy who grabbed a mic and, uh, and came up here. I, agree, I bring you greetings from Hinson Baptist Church in Inner Southeast. Uh, I serve there as an associate pastor. Um, and uh, it's been a lot of fun for our church, Hinson, to get to know your church through your pastors over the last several years. Uh, I know Michael, uh, especially our lead pastor at Henson, uh, really appreciates his friendship with Matt. And I, uh, I've really appreciated getting to know Matt and Jordan and Draith and Jerry, among others. Uh, one of my roles at Henson is to oversee the youth group, so I've particularly uh, enjoyed getting to know Jordan and, uh, and becoming friends with Jordan over the last several years. We've uh, had a lot of fun together, and I've really benefited much from his wisdom, his experience, and his example. Uh, we're really excited at Henson for our second um, time doing our summer camping trip or our water ski camp with Harvest. So we're combining our youth groups once again to do this. It's one of the highlights of the summer, so we're really looking forward to that uh, as, as two churches who believe the same gospel, it's just a joy to partner with you in gospel ministry here, here in the Portland area. Well, I love, to get, I love the fact that I get to kick off your summer series on Jesus' parables. And uh, because I'm going first, I can tell you all sorts of things about parables. And if any of the other preachers who come after me contradict what I say, listen to me, not them. They don't know what they're talking about. Uh, uh, just kidding, I, I know Matt would only choose the best, <laughs> the, the, the most faithful and gifted preachers to come preach to you while he's away. Uh, no, actually, the fact that I'm speaking and then I know, Jordan, you're speaking later makes me wonder. <laughs> what, <laughs> what was Matt thinking? <laughs> Anyways. Uh, well, Jesus, Jesus told a lot of parables, um, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, I, I might be making this number up, but I think 40% of Jesus' teaching in Matthew are parables. Uh, a parable, like a good joke, disarms the listener. Uh, and, and Jesus is seeking to illustrate what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like um, by using parables. He also told parables to conceal the kingdom of God or heaven to those who were hostile to him. If you want a more academic reason why Jesus spoke in parables, um, I can give it to you here. Uh, Jesus told parables to confront people with the character of God's kingdom and to invite them to participate in it and live in accordance with it. So memorize that if you want to sound smart at your next Bible study or just be a nerd. Uh, but more simply, more simply, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus' aim in this parable uh, that Paul, I think, just read was uh, in Matthew 25 is that we might watch for Christ's return as faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us. 
that we might watch for Christ's return as faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us. I know for, for many of us, we are, we are watching and waiting for summer vacation, especially those of you who are in school, can't wait for summer. Um, ultimately, though, as Christians, we are watching and we are waiting for the return of Christ. We were just singing about that, that glorious day of the Lord when he returns. That, is, that day is more sure than the day that school gets out. So we, we as Christians are to be watching and waiting for the return of Christ. Um, you're going to be helped throughout the sermon if you have a Bible or if you have, you have one on your phone or something, if you're looking together with me at Matthew 25. Um, so if you're not already there, I'd, in, I'd encourage you to, to open there now. You can use your table of contents if you're not familiar with using the Bible. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The, the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. So sometimes I'll be referring to chapter 25, verse 14, and so on. And that's what I mean when I speak like that. Um, I've broken down how we are to watch for Christ's return into three points that will organize our time together. We must, must watch for Christ's return with faith, hope, and love. We must watch for Christ's return with faith, hope, and love. First, we must watch for Christ's return with faith. To really understand the parable of the, of the talents, we need to get some context. We need to see that this parable is a part of a collection of, uh, of parables. In the parable right before this one, if you look up to verse 1 of chapter 25, it says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. Uh, so when we look down to verse 14 and Jesus says, for it will be like, we can put together that he's still talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And, and uh, if we zoom out to the context more largely in chapters 24 and 25, this, this is a particular collection of parables here in Matthew that have in common this theme of waiting, waiting for the return of a master, or in the parable right before ours, waiting for a bridegroom. But Jesus is not just teaching his disciples that they must kind of passively wait, but actively to watch, to be prepared. Uh, and thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us just guessing what it looks like to be prepared for his coming, um, but he defines the task to which we must be occupied until he returns. So namely, in this passage, we must be good stewards of all that he has loaned us, that we must be good stewards of all that he's loaned us. And one of the first things that we notice in this parable is that a good steward who is watching for Christ's return is faithful. He must watch with faith, full of faith. Now, the word faith has kind of fallen on hard times. Um, sometimes when we hear the word faith, we think of blind faith, you know, kind of ignoring external evidence or science, and you just got to have faith. So if that's what you kind of think of when I use the word faith, maybe substitute the word um, faith for trust. Uh, a person who trusts Jesus. And a person who trusts Jesus is trust worthy. That is obviously what this master in this parable is looking for. He's looking for trustworthy or faithful servants. Uh, for this very wealthy master has entrusted his servants with his property. Uh, the master entrusts eight talents total to these three servants. So how rich is this baller? Uh, we know, we don't really know actually. 
We don't, we don't know the, the, the measurements. We just know that a talent is the largest weight of measurement for money. So five, we know, is a lot. Three is considerable. One is not to be disregarded. It's still a significant amount of money. This master is loaded. Um, and as the story goes on, he doesn't just give his servants money with the expectation that they'll buy everything on their Amazon wish list once he leaves. No, they remain his servants, and they know he's coming back. He expects them to be full of faith, faithful with what is his, to not just let his talents sit dormant, but to invest them. And it appears that that's exactly what the first two servants do. They set up businesses. They take initiative. They're active in preparing for the return of the master. They're personally invested in seeing that what the master has entrusted to them is profitable. The first two servants are faithful stewards. They double what the master has given them. The, the one who is given five makes five more. The one given two makes two more. Whereas the one who is given one talent, he buries his in the ground, and it makes no return. So the third servant, you see, is not a faithful servant. Uh, the master calls this servant wicked and slothful. Pretty strong words. So what does it look like to be a faithful servant? What can we learn from this, this passage of what it looks like to be a faithful servant even for, for us today? Well, first, it means to understand yourself as one under authority. That all that you have has been given to you. It's been given to you. Uh, our very lives are stewardships. We are not self-made men and women. We have a master, and we have a creator, and he is God. Uh, God created man and woman in the garden to be fruitful and multiply. By that, he didn't just mean to have a lot of babies. Uh, he made them to cultivate the garden, he, to, to make the garden grow, to cause human flourishing. You know, we're not in the garden of paradise, obviously, uh, today, uh, but God still intends you to be a faith, to cause flourishing where you are, faithfully, to cause flourishing where you are. So I wonder, what has God given you? What has he entrusted to you? Maybe he's entrusted to you a job uh, or a, a family, uh, your health, your money, a house. Do you realize that none of that's yours? None of it. None of it is actually yours. That health, it's not your, your own. That house doesn't belong to you. That job isn't yours. Those aren't your kids. They are trusts given to you for a time. Are you being faithful with them? When Christ returns, will he be pleased in how you made those things grow? Are you causing your family to flourish? Are you causing your workplace to flourish? Your home? Your church? What would it look like for you not just to be someone who comes to Harvest Community Church, but who is someone who causes Harvest to flourish in faith and godliness and unity. Well, second, faithful servants grow in faith. We're going to go through these pretty quickly. 
if, if you're a Christian, the most valuable gift that God has given you is your faith. Uh, so how does faith grow? Just like any muscle. It needs to be exercised. Faith must work. So are you exercising your faith? You know, a real faith isn't a private faith. It isn't just like these personal convictions, but it take, real faith takes risks for the glory of the Master. We aren't to be conservative investors when it comes to our faith. Faith doesn't just sit in an account so that upon retirement or death, you get the return of heaven. That's not how faith works. The Bible never talks about faith that way. Sometimes we in America, we make faith just praying a prayer, you know, in vacation Bible school, maybe when we're five years old, and because we did that, you know, at the end, we get heaven. It's like a ticket. That is never how the Bible talks about faith. Uh, That is not what it looks like to be a faithful steward. So is your faith growing? Is it active? Uh, Third, to what it looks like to be a faithful servant is looking to Christ and the gospel. I think we're really helped here in knowing what faith is by looking at the most faithful servant ever, (laughs) the most uh, trustworthy man who ever lived, and looking to Christ and the gospel. Uh, Jesus Christ was entrusted with a body. He was entrusted with a mission. You know, he was weak. He was human, just like you and I. He got tired. He had pressures. But he never lost sight of his master. He got up early in the morning. He communed with his master in prayer. He sought to please his master in all that he did and said. So even when it meant the most costly of sacrifices, Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, not my will, but yours be done. That was was a prayer of faith. And when he went to the cross and drank the cup of God's holy wrath, as a sacrifice that we should have drank for our unfaithfulness. He was showing how he was the perfect suffering servant. He was condemned on the cross in our place, even though he had lived the perfect and faithful life. You you, you see, this was Christ's mission to die the death of unfaithful servants like you and me. He was faithful, Jesus was faithful, when we were not. And because Jesus accomplished his mission with such faithfulness, he was rewarded richly. He rose from the dead after three days in the tomb. His faithfulness was vindicated by the Father. And now, Jesus has been entrusted with authority over the whole cosmos and the judgment of every human being who will ever live, who has ever lived. And his his judgments are, are faithful and true, and he will make all things right upon his return. Are you looking to this Jesus with faith? You know, it's our temptation today to live by sight, isn't it? Instead of by faith. And that's what this third servant does. He thinks to himself, you know, I'm going to play it safe because I don't want the master to be angry with me. What if I fail? Maybe he's thinking, we don't really know, but maybe he's thinking, uh, he must think I'm not very talented or very gifted because he only gave me one talent when he gave those other guys, you know, five and two. 
So since he hasn't given me much, I'm just going to sit on this until he returns and call him out for not being fair. Maybe, maybe that's you this morning. Uh, Maybe you look around and you see the faith or the blessing that God has given others, even sitting around you, and you say, God, come on, that's not fair. You know, how come, how come I don't get a spouse or children or children like that? Uh, or that kind of job, <laughs> or, uh, or a nice house, or an outgoing personality, vacations like that. How come, how come I don't get a sabbatical? <laughs> no. um, maybe you compare yourself to others when it comes to spiritual matters or even ministry, and you think, I can never pray like that. I can never talk about my faith like that. So why even try? Why even try? That's not living by faith. Faith doesn't look inward, but it looks up and it looks out. Faith isn't living by what you can see, but by a hope of what is coming. That brings us to our second point. We should watch for Christ's return with hope. When the first two servants get to work in our parable, undoubtedly they're doing so with the confidence that the master is going to return, right? Uh, And that when he returns, they will be commended for their faith, for their good work. Their hope is to hear these words that we see here. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You know, ever, from the very beginning, I have an almost two-year-old, so I know, I, I see this, but the affirmation of others motivates us. You know, it starts early, and though we might get, you know, more complex and prideful as we get older, we don't change a whole lot in in this. We want the affirmation of others. It motivates us. No one aims to be a disappointment to those around him or her. Uh, No one aims to be a lousy employer or a family member. Everyone hopes that they will succeed and be affirmed by others. I wonder, are you working to be affirmed by God, the heavenly master? Do you hope to hear these words that we see in this parable? Well done, good and faithful servant. Well, if you're a Christian this morning, of course you do, right? Of course you want to hear those words. And and the wonderful thing is that God doesn't leave us in this life just like wishing, crossing our fingers that we're going to hear these words. We can have certainty. That's what real hope is. We use hope to t- like we use the word wish, but that's not how the Bible talks about hope. A hope is, is certain. This is what real hope is. These three servants, they know what they're going to get from their master. The first two servants, they made 100% uh, return on their master's investment. They couldn't wait to show the master what they had done. Uh, whereas the third servant, he had his excuse ready. He has, he has his rationale ready. He's not looking forward to the, what the master's going to say. He's planning what he's going to say to the master. He's going to show the master up, how the master was unfair. And, uh, and he, he, call, he calls the master a h- harsh and a hard man. Um, and the master, he's going to prove the third servant right. He's going to say, you think, you think of me harsh? Then you will get what you expected. You know, I, I think we all know what we are investing in in this, in this life. I think we all know who ultimately we're trying to please. Uh, you just need to look at how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what you talk about. 
What are you hoping will be the return on your life when it's all said and done? What if this next week, if, you, if you're in the workforce, if you work a job, what if your boss came to you and said, hey, good job, I really appreciate how you've done yada, 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 you know? And uh, obviously you'd be encouraged, especially if they put some thought into it, I'm like I just did now. Um, but what if, what if not only he said good job, but your boss, she says, uh, I'm going to double your paycheck. I'm going to double your annual salary. Um, you know, that, that's enough to make anybody happy. You, you would go home pretty, pretty pumped. Um, but after, that, after a while, uh, even that happiness would fade, wouldn't it? You'd, you'd want more a couple years later. Um, uh, so the, the master in this story gives his servants something better than just more money. He gives them joy. You know, joy is more dependable than happiness. Happiness can come and go based on our mood or our circumstances. So this master, he gives his servants joy. As Christians, we can know true joy today, but not in, not in full. We have to fight for true joy, don't we? Yet soon, our joy will know no end. And it will be overflowing in abundance on that glorious day. For soon, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will enter into the eternal and perfect joy of the Master. That's what verse 29 is saying. In one sense, it's biblical that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. If you are rich in Christ today, you will be rich eternally with the joy of seeing Christ when your faith becomes sight. But if you don't know Christ today, you will be separated from his joy forever. So if you don't know Christ today, today is the day of salvation. Repent, turn from seeking to find joy in the things of this life which are passing away. Turn from looking to yourself to fulfill yourself and trust in this master, this joyful master. Uh, perhaps when I talk about the joy of, of Christ or the joy of God and, and some of the things that I've been saying just sound kind of like religious mumbo-jumbo to you this morning. Uh, maybe you, as you think, you, as you read a parable like this one in Matthew 25, you identify more with that third servant. You're like, yeah, well, how come he only did get one? Uh, that, I, I, can, I can resonate with that. Um, and you think of God as kind of harsh, mean, uh, looking for do-gooders, and punishing those who don't meet his strict standards. That's how you think of God. Um, uh, if, if thinking about the joy of God is something that's kind of new to you, or you would like to think about more, I've got book recommendations for you. Um, uh, that might be hard to see, but John Piper's The Pleasures of God, or Michael Reeves' Rejoicing in Christ. I just recently read uh, Rejoicing in Christ by Michael Reeves. It's just about 100-something pages. It is magnificent. You will rejoice in the gospel. Um, and out of that Pleasures of God book by John Piper, I want, you, I want to read to you a, a quote about what he says about God's joy. The greatest joy is joy in God. This is plain from Psalm 1611. You, God, will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Fullness of joy and eternal joy cannot be improved. 
Nothing is fuller than full, and nothing is longer than eternal. And this joy is owing to the presence of God, not the accomplishments of man. Therefore, if God wants to love us infinitely and delight us fully and eternally, he must preserve for us the one thing that will satisfy us totally and eternally, namely, the presence and worth of his own glory. He alone is the source of full and lasting pleasure. God is glorious, and God is full of joy. He's the happiest being in the universe, and it's always been that way. From eternity past, he has been filled with joy with himself in the Trinity. He created the universe because he is filled with joy. He created man and woman in the garden in his image because he is filled with joy. After man fell from grace, he made a promise to Adam and Eve that he would send a rescuer because he is filled with joy. He made promises and spoke to his people in the Old Testament because he is filled with joy. And it filled him with great joy to send his son when all hope seemed lost, when the prophets had gone silent for 400 years. It filled him with great joy to send his one and only son to live the perfect life and to die the death that we deserved. Joy is what awakened the Son of God on the third day out of the tomb in Jerusalem. You know, Jesus endured the punishment and the suffering we deserve, not because he was some like macho Marine or Green Beret, or he just had a crazy high pain tolerance. It wasn't because he was filled with duty, you know, to accomplish his mission that his father had given him. No, Scripture tells us that the pioneer of our faith, Jesus Christ, endured the cross, scorning its shame, because he knew what was ahead. He was certain how the story would end. It was for the joy set before him. So will the joy of this master motivate you to press on? Soon, servants of God, you will know joy in abundance. Very soon. An objective joy, not just an experiential feeling, uh, not just any joy, but the joy of God himself. The universe expands with this joy. The sun blazes with this joy. The earth rotates and revolves with this joy. And soon, child of God, you will know this joy forever, and it will overflow so that you can hardly remember what it was like to bear your cross. I want to read you another quote from J.C. Ryle from his book, Holiness. He writes, let this encourage you. The time is very short. A few more years of watching and praying, a few more tossings on the sea of this world, a few more deaths and changes, a few more winters and summers, and all will be over. We shall have fought our last battle and shall need to fight no more. The presence and company of Christ will make amends for all we suffer here below. When we see as we have been seen and look back on the journey of life, we shall wonder at our own faintness of heart. We shall marvel that we made so much of our cross and thought so little of our crown. We shall marvel that in counting the cost, 
we could ever doubt on which side the balance of profit lay. Let us take courage. We are not far from home. It may cost much to be a true Christian and a consistent believer, but it pays. Well, we must not only watch for Christ's return with faith and hope, but finally with love. That's our third point. Watch for Christ's return with love. You know, the third servant ultimately doesn't work for his master because he doesn't love the master. Uh, You can see that in verses 24 and 25. He actually despises him. Yet the third servant's hate for his master is not based on truth, not based on who the master is, but do you see, he even confesses why it is. It's based on fear. He says, I was afraid. Fear causes this servant to sit and to rationalize. He doesn't get busy with starting a business. Instead, he literally buries his talent in the ground. He hides it. He says, here, master, have what is yours. But what accounts for the faithfulness and hope of the other two servants? Why are they able to stay busy in investing the master's money? It must be love. They must love the master. They must know him to be a good master, not a harsh taskmaster, but a kind and a generous master who will reward his servants who are faithful. Their ultimate motivation is love. I assume for many of you, you you guys are upstanding citizens, good moral people. You come to church on Sundays after all. Uh, I'm sure you're good parents. Uh, Many of you... I assume read your Bible even daily. Give money to the church. That was encouraging. Um, and that's all well and good as far as it goes. But do you love God? Do you love God? What do you love about Him? What do you love about Jesus? Do you ever find yourself talking about how you love God, love Christ. I'm going to be honest, sometimes I'm just going through the motions. I do what I do in ministry and life out of profound sense of duty. Yes, I do want to hear well done and good and faithful servant. I want to be good. But God isn't after more good deeds. He wants you. He wants your love. Good deeds will flow out of that love. This coming Tuesday, I'm going to be at a graveside service for a longtime member of our church, uh, Joe Alfici. Uh, He leaves behind a wife, two sons, ages 18 and 24. Joe is only 62, uh, and he died last week. His last really clear words were, I love you, Jesus, take me home. Uh, How did Joe's love for Christ express itself in this life? Well, let me tell you a little bit about Joe. Joe was uh, usually the first person I saw at church at Henson on Sundays. Uh, Though he had Parkinson's disease, He would be waiting at the door as a greeter, holding it open with a big smile on his face. 
Uh, he was the first one to arrive at church often and sometimes one of the last to leave. Joe wasn't a very outgoing guy. He was a man of few words. He hated to be up front or have the attention drawn to him. About once a month, he would go to Costco and just buy a bunch of water bottles, and he would personally deliver it to whoever was preaching, whoever was leading the service, and the musicians. He would deliver those water bottles. Um, and, e and, and even at the end of Joe's life, when he was in so much pain, uh, pancreatic cancer is an awful, awful disease. But he, he would be in bed all week in the final months of his life, but he would rally for Sundays. He so wanted to be with God's people at Henson and to hear his word. You know, I didn't know until just, I guess it was last week or the week before, that Joe on his very meager salary was the one going to Costco buying those water bottles. Uh, I didn't know it was Joe who was putting away the sound equipment almost every week. You know, Joe in this life was entrusted with water bottles, with, uh, with sound equipment. But now, I can't imagine what Joe has been entrusted with, what the Father has entrusted his faithful, humble servants. You know, Joe's body no longer shakes from Parkinson's disease. Cancer no longer ravages his body. Instead, he has been welcomed in to the joy of the Master. The Master has abundantly entrusted Joe with much today. I hope you get to meet Joe in eternity. He will be shining with the glory and joy of the Master. Are you watching for Christ's return like Joe was? Are you using this short life that God has given you to put your faith to work and to hope for his joyful reward. Duty's not going to get you there. Guilt will never work. Only one thing is necessary. The greatest of these is love. Do you love your master? He has given you much. Sure, maybe not as much as the guy sitting next to you. But he's given you everything you need to enter into the perfect joy of the Master one day. For he's given you himself. Look to him in love. He has loved you at the cost of his son Jesus. Will you look to him? Let's pray. And as I pray, I'd like to welcome the worship team to come up. Let's take a, take a second to silently to consider what we've heard from God's word today. Lord, we confess we want to know your joy. But we know that waiting for us this week perhaps are our challenges, frustrations, our own sin so easily entangled. So Lord, we, we pray that you would give us faith 
to press on, to persevere, to put our faith to work, to look to the joy of our Savior Jesus, and to love. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We need you. We need you, Holy Spirit, to fill us. Lord, I pray that you would fill this church, this family of faith, that they would spur one another on to love and to good deeds. That they would recognize that not only can they not do it by themselves, that they need your spirit and they need your spirit working through your people. So may they look to one another, encouraging one another, confessing their sin to one another, and then looking to the gospel together, looking to the perfect one, the perfect faithful one, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.